bandwidth for this week's episode of Book Eyes is brought to you by hollowbooks.com, where they create custom-made books where you can hide just about anything. You choose the book, they do the rest. It's the Book Guys Show, and we're back. Hey, everything's working, guys. The, the Mac's working. Had to reformat it. My name is Paul, the Book Guy, Alves, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm joined, as always, by the one and only Greg Damlo in Seattle. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. We are rain-free for almost two and a half hours now. Yeah, I think I think we all escaped the uh, the storm again in 2016. <laughs> we did okay. <laughs> And in his hollow book bunker is the one and only Sir Jimmy in North Carolina. How you doing, sir? Soggy. We actually <laughs> got some serious rain here, um, but survived it. Little wind. I think it. Uh, I think it blew a paper cup off the tailgate of my truck. So I'm the horror. Cashing an insurance the horror. claim. <laughs> All right. And I believe in Oklahoma, rounding out uh, so that we have like four time zones in one episode is Mr. David Ruckus. How are you, sir? I am good. I am. Uh, I'm quite dry as well. We are uh, far away from the hurricane, so thank God. Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, let's start off uh, the show. Do you guys want to do a what are we reading? Or, or do yeah, we... that's uh, actually you know that goes to uh, David Burkus, uh, David your podcast under is it still under new management? I'm... Well, the podcast is called Radio Free Leader. Radio Free Leader, uh, and he always asks, what are you reading? At the end, we started out with, the be- uh, what are you reading, or what's on your nightstand at the beginning? Yeah, hmm. and I just found the jingle, so let's do it. What's on your... What's on your Kindle, your nightstand? What's on your... What's on your computer, your Kindle? What are you reading? This, this Today, you guys have to really delay and give me a you know far advanced warning before we play jingles, because I don't have none of them on my screen. Uh, let's start off with Mr. Craig. Uh, so you've been listening to the podcast. Tell us a bit about it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've been listening to David's podcast, uh, Radio Free Leader. And uh, it's he's it's usually about a half hour or so, and he's got different authors, different thought leaders from uh, innovation and strategy on there. I think uh, just recently, this week, um, you had Servanus Rao. On. Yep, Sreeni. Yep, and uh, it's it's a nice. I like it. I really like it because well, it's dangerous because you find out of a lot of good books that you add to your uh, Kindle list to buy later. <laughs> uh, but it's it's nice. It's a nice dose of here's here's a hot topic. Here's the highlights of it, and here's what you can read to go in more in depth. Nice. Nice. Uh, Jimmy, what's on your reading list or, or what are you listening to? Uh, a Space Rocket History podcast. I, I found out that I accidentally deleted it somehow. And uh, it's kind of thrilling because I got like two months of uh, backup episodes I've been catching up on. I uh, somehow deleted it and didn't realize because I have so many. And turns out that I deleted it right as I got to uh, the Apollo 8 launch. So. That's a fun little podcast by a guy here in North Carolina. But I, I want to mention here at the top of the show that uh, on the Book Guys subreddit, I put a post in there that I have about 10 audio books to give away. Wowzers. I just asked, you know, for if somebody posted in there, I send them a free audio book. And so far, we've only got one taker. 
<laughs> hey, hey there, there's incentive to go to book guys. Uh, sorry, reddit.com slash r slash book guys. Yeah, the, the guy was pretty excited. He said he, he likes his chances. Well, we, could, we, <laughs> we couldn't scare people on there, so let's maybe try bribing. That might work. Here we go. <laughs> I'll stop sending the death threats now. And Mr. Bruckus, uh, what have uh, you been reading or listening to lately? So um, I have an eclectic set of tastes, if you can't tell from the podcast. So I actually, I just finished reading um, General Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams, which is a really, really good book about the pivots and changes that the um, armed forces needed to make when dealing with al-Qaeda in Iraq. Essentially, you know, al-Qaeda was the first big kind of network. They weren't a nation state, so you had to fight them a little bit differently. Um, and he outlines the changes of that. And then I pivoted straight from that to um, Scott Albert Adams, the guy that uh, wrote Dilbert, has a book that came out probably several months ago now. I'm just now getting to it called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, subtitle, Kind of the Story of My Life. Um, and I actually, I wasn't the biggest, like, I, I'm a fan of Dilbert's and I didn't really follow um, Scott Adams all that much until he's actually... In, in what is the weirdest election in U.S. history, I believe he's the most prescient commentator because he looks at the whole thing through the lens of his training as a hypnotist. Apparently, before he wrote Dilbert Comics, he was a hypnotist. And so his, <laughs> his whole like outline of like, well, yeah, they're lies, but here's how both of them are trying to persuade you is just uh, fascinating to me. So that made me like, okay, well, all right, I'll check out his, his first foray into a nonfiction book. Let's do this. So... Um, yeah, how to how to fail at almost everything and still win big. It's a really it's an enjoyable read. He's very yeah, nice I thought that he endorsed the Johnson for that. Yeah, so I mean, he's. I think by the end of the election, he will endorse every major candidate. He just sort of flips <laughs> around and is like, "Here's the reasons why. If I were to endorse this person, I would endorse this this one." The the newest is apparently yeah, he's endorsing Johnson to get out of the blast zone. In other words, like it's the only one he can say without getting people like arguing with him. Um, it's quite, it, but it's really, really, his blog has been really, really funny to watch again from that lens of hypnosis and, uh, and persuasion and, and the book is pretty good too. So I'm only a couple chapters in, but I'm enjoying it. Nice. And we, we recently, uh, had a chat with Scott Meyer. So I, uh, uh, delved into off to be the wizard and really enjoyed that. That was a, a fun listen on audible as well. Uh, and I believe Scott will either be on later this episode or the next one. And let's uh, let's talk to David. David, uh, about your latest uh, books. Tell us yeah, all about. So, okay. All right. So we'll start. We'll start and we'll work our way backwards. How's that? Hey, perfect. So, um, the, the newest book is under new management, and really, it came from my fascination with all of these sort of weird company practices, stuff that just sounds really, really weird when you hear it. And then when you think about it for like thirty seconds longer, you're like, oh, well, wait a minute. That I hear that actually sounds pretty good. So it's the things like unlimited vacation and letting everybody know what everybody gets paid and the fact that com some companies invest in alumni networks. So even after you quit, they're still trying to take care of you and give you benefits and stuff. It's, it's a re you know, really, really kind of counterintuitive from the world that we most of us work in. And I see, I mean, by training, I'm an organizational psychologist. So I see it all through that lens. And what I wasn't seeing in all of the business insider and fast company and ink stories on these different policies was that psychology and about well, here's why these ideas actually work and even if you can't carbon copy that practice and bring it into your own company if you understand the psychology behind why it works then you might actually be able to do something similar to it and get the same benefit yeah i, I was gonna say i i read it and it was a great book uh and i i really liked how yeah at the end of each chapter you kind of go into okay 
yeah, maybe you can't give uh, everybody a sabbatical, but there are small things you can do, like forcing people to use their vacation or encouraging them, or I guess rewarding them. Um, and actually, I think my favorite thing out of that chapter was the precation. Was that mm, 42 floors? Yeah. That yep. uh, was a great concept. Yeah, no, I love so so for everybody listening, this is a the precation is the idea that basically, you know, normally we if we decide we want to make a move, we are burnt out in our current organization and we're trying to juggle the dismissal of the current job while also job hunting. And then we find a new job and they want us to start like, you know, the next day or two weeks later at the at the absolute max. And this company, 42 Floors, was basically like, well, yeah, we're getting really talented people, but they're already burnt out from their last job. So they're not doing their best work. So essentially, when you get hired at 42 Floors, what they do is they say, okay, here's, here is your job offer, and here is a plane ticket and vacation. Go take one. You have to before you start. So that when you come to us, you're actually relaxed, refreshed, and ready to go crush it again. Yeah, I, I think that's a great concept. I, I know I know there are people that kind of save up their vacation and do that anyways, but uh, I like the idea of a company being smart enough to recognize, hey, that's uh, that's really needed. Um, well, you know, and what's funny is is the people that save up their vacation too. A lot of times, then when HR comes and goes, well, well, you know, we'll buy you out for those vacation days. It's like, oh, well, that's a, that's a good amount of money for a quitting bonus, right? So right. they don't end up actually taking the vacation. They just get paid for the days they didn't take, and then they get none of that benefit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, That was one. Uh, I thought probably for me, just mentally uh, where I've been, and, and I work my day, day-to-day, I work still with a lot of inter, uh, in an international company in the uh, transparent salaries chapter <laughs> of saying, okay, everybody's going to know what you make, um, and you're going to know what everyone else makes, I guess, more importantly. Uh, that one that one seems to me mentally the biggest hurdle to buy into. Oh, and I can see that. And I, you know, I didn't start that way. Like, if you had told me before I started writing the book that, like, hey, later you're going to give a TEDx talk and then it's going to go on the front page of TED.com and almost a million people are going to watch you make the case for salary transparency. I would have been like, you know, let's actually, let's edit that chapter out. I'm not not sure this is the hill I want to die on. Um, but but I should I should clarify, because what, what the practice is, is not necessarily what letting everyone know what everybody gets paid. Um, that's an effect of the practice. The practice is having a uniform and universally seen as fair system of pay and then letting people know what that system is. Now, by default, people can figure out what each other makes. Some companies go as far as just going, well, look, here's our formula. And since you already know everybody, here's a list of what everybody gets paid. Um, so some go that far into transparency. But really what I, what I try and advocate for in that chapter is just that I think most organizations strive to have a fair pay system. I don't think anybody is trying to rip anybody off on purpose. But a lot of inequity happens in that um, secret system because uh, just in job negotiations, you have one side has all of the power and all of the information, and so they can get a really good deal on talent. And so it's tempting not to take that really good deal. Um, in other situations, you have um, you, you have examples of uh, secrecy kind of exacerbating the gender wage gap because there's not really a place to speak up about inequalities that are noticed, et cetera. So, I, you know, my my argument is that if you work for a company that has a fair system and wants people to feel like and trust that their company has a fair system, then you have to make that system somewhat transparent. For some companies, that's saying, you know, here's the formula. And, and if you wanted to do the math, you could plug everybody's variables in and figure out their formula, although most people don't. 
For others, it's going as far as saying, uh, because they want to be transparent to their customers, it's saying, look, here are all our salaries, so you know how we're spending our money. And every company is a little bit different, but I think most people can take a few steps forward on the transparency scale and experience a lot of benefits from that increase in sense of fairness and surprisingly an increase in morale. It actually, in the companies that I've, I looked at, it actually kind of reduced the infighting and the jealousy and that kind of stuff. Because if there was any animosity, it was turned towards the organization and the system, and then the system was rectified, not turned towards individual people for taking advantage of that system. You know, I, I find that the the whole uh, not talking about your salary is a, is more of a U.S. thing because uh, I, I don't find I never found that in uh, in corporate culture or pretty much any workplace in Canada. I mean, everyone's pretty upfront about you know from from the janitor to to the CEO. They you just ask them well, how much you make, by the way, X amount of dollars. That's great. <laughs> you know, I I I, never, I used to watch uh, you know seeing uh, American television and it was always this uh, this faux pas, this taboo. That you didn't uh, discuss how much you made, where I, I, I never found that here in, in this country anyways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something that is cultural. What's weird is I cannot, like Hofstede was the original researcher on cultures and he created the kind of cultural dimensions, these five dimensions that kind of tell the personality of different countries. I can't find anything in there that salary transparency correlates to, but in different countries you see very, very different approaches. There are some... Um, Scandinavian countries, I'm actually blanking on the specific one that lets everybody everybody in the, in the town can go look up the tax records of anybody else if they wanted it. So it's not even company-wide, it's society-wide. Um, and then, you know, I would assume that more collectivistic countries tend to have that more, but that's not the case because you get some countries in, um, in Asia, Asia and Oceania that are very, very secretive. But what I do know is that it is a cultural thing. It drives its roots from back in the culture, not necessarily from any sort of logic or agreed upon standard. It's just a cultural difference between some some countries and others. Hmm. But as you can imagine from watching all those shows in the U.S., saying getting getting on a stage and saying everybody should know what everybody gets paid is basically picking a fight with the entire country. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let me ask. Let me ask a question on. on sticking with under new management the uh so that's in the middle kind of uh the the uh, salaries roughly uh mm -hmm. you have outlaw email at the beginning and you finish up with uh, essentially fire all managers is the book put together in a specific pattern like okay chapter one ban emails that's the easiest one and the one i should do the right away or is it was it just kind of uh it's not alphabetical. How, how did you how did you put it together? Because each chapter is a separate. Really, is it's it's not a non fic or I mean, it's not a fictional book, so it's it doesn't have to be read. I would assume chapter to chapter. Yeah. So um, I don't I don't think you want the answer to this question. Um, <laughs> I'll give it anyway, but I don't think you want it. So I write books in a modular format. Like my I have I, I attribute it to like I joke that I have intellectual ADHD. Um, which is to say that like, I find, I just like to collect different ideas and find them fascinating. And, and you know, in this case, the, the, the through line throughout all of the ideas is in the introduction and the conclusion. The through line is that this, that the world of work is changing. And so the rule book we're using to manage work needs to change as well. And then in the middle, you have 13 different practices that, that run the gamut from individual practices to, um, group wide and even to sort of society wide, if you think about alumni networks and that kind of a thing. And um, I would love to say that, like, and when I give speeches on the book, um, I usually trace a narrative arc that is kind of like from how you um, bring people into the organization, so how you hire, 
to how you collaborate, which is where the email piece comes in and the manager's piece comes in, to what happens when they leave, which is where the celebrate departures piece comes in. We don't have that narrative arc in the book for the worst possible reason. So, so here's why, basically. When you um, publish a book in 2016, a lot of people decide whether or not they want to read that book based on the two free sample chapters that they can download via Amazon Kindle. And so as a result, what you do is you put in a chapter that will tell them the whole sort of arc of the book. That's the introduction. And then you put in a chapter that will be the, the most scandalous, but also get the most heads nodding and people wanting to buy the book. And so that's outlaw email. That's the one that everybody has a love-hate relationship with. So it's kind of like either they're going to love that because they already hate their email and this is proof why, or they're going to be interested in it because they don't know how they would survive without email and the idea that companies do is going to be equally uh, amazing. So so that was the idea. We basically were trying to put our most interesting foot forward, and that turned out to be email. When we did, you know, I, I gave the book out to a lot of different people, had them read it ahead of time, and that was one they always came back to. So that was the one we led with. And then, you know, after that, there's a little bit of that arc and shift from individual to um, to team, to company, to what happens when they leave the company. But for the most part, uh, a lot of the structure is a, is just kind of a what you have to do in 2016. Now, that was not the case with The Myths of Creativity, my, my first book. That one actually really does trace a, a deliberate arc, um, in part because no one was really doing the two-chapter symbol thing, and in part because I didn't know about the two-chapter preview thing. So um, that one's got a little bit more structure than Under New Management does. But a lot of it just comes out, like I said, again, from that. I, I find the modular format sort of fascinating, this idea... You know, and, and Gladwell and Pink to some extent and Chip and Dan Heath do this too, where it's sort of like there is a through line that you draw in the beginning and end. And then in the middle, it's kind of a collection of essays that are all around whatever that core concept is. I mean, it's the new world we live in. It's it's an interesting. I hadn't heard someone say that, the uh, sample chapters, uh, but you're right. Um, well, uh, and, and, and I, and I say it like it's a, I, yeah, and I say it like it's a tragedy, but it, the 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 format the medium has always sort of affected the message right if you think about like um the man in the iron mask and a lot of those era pieces those were serials those were published in short little bursts in newspapers so the way that it was getting out into the world was actually affecting the medium to some extent and really i mean that book's probably a lot longer than it needs to be because of the contract with the the newspaper and that sort of thing so this has kind of always been the case um in books i mean this is the book guys show so we can nerd out on this kind of stuff totally. um and it's weird to see what uh you know modern technologies are doing to kind of change that and you can see it in a lot of books that you look at where you can see that either all of the ideas are in the first one to two chapters one to three chapters and then the rest is sort of proof of the idea or the kind of most interesting, cool book. You know, if you think about it like a movie trailer, the coolest scenes are up in the front because that's what people are previewing. Yeah. And you, you look at a system like Inkshares where uh, a, a lot of the authors there only have one or two chapters posted and, and that's how they fund their, uh, I guess, their, you know, their sort of kick-started uh, books there. So, yeah, you, you find a lot of concentration of the ideas in the first uh, one or two chapters. Just like yeah, said. well, and there's and there's a lot of people that are doing that same serial format with like podcasts. Like I, I don't remember his name, but there was a science fiction writer who basically read his audio book every chapter um, as he was writing it, and he did that to buy to build an audience. And then he said, "Hey, do you want the collector's edition? It's the print copy of the book. Go here to buy it." Yeah, that would either be Seth Harwood or Scott Sigler or both. I think I I don't know which one I'm thinking of. So let's go with both. <laughs> let's go with both. <laughs> I don't want I don't want to run the risk of not giving the other one proper credit. That's right. 
So, so David, uh, tell us how you your first book. How did you publish your first book? How did you how did you get it out there? Um, so the first one was with uh, Josie Bass. They're in imprint of Wiley, and really, I mean, if you want to go way back into like, how did you build the platform that got the book deal? Is that where you're headed, or just what the experience with the first book was? Sure, like? well, either or, just uh, how it all went for you, and how how you actually got it uh, out to the the viewing public, as they say. Okay, yeah. So um, I. I, if you want to, I'll give you the short version of the whole story just to set the context. So my, like everybody's got that kind of formative book that they read that they can think about as like, this is the book that changed my life. Um, and mine for, for me, it's the tipping point and it's not actually because of the ideas in the tipping point. There's actually, there's a lot of really cool ideas in the tipping point and I'm rereading it for a project I'm working on now, but it wasn't that it was the fact that I read it having just, um, or almost finished my university life. Um, having just finished uh, all of the credits I needed for an English major. And I read it and I went, well, I can do this. Like, okay, so this is fascinating. This is a person who is telling, you know, the truth, telling uh, nonfiction in a way that's not boring because he's using, you know, principles of storytelling throughout. And really, I mean, actually, Gladwell's style is he writes um, thriller novels about academic ideas, right? Because if you look at his structure, he's always opening a loop, then closing a loop, then opening a loop, then closing a loop. And when you look at it through the lens of like having just studied English literature and writing, you read it and you go, well, I can do this, you know, with enough practice, I can get there. And by and I am by no means saying I'm there yet. Gladwell is still an incredibly skilled writer, but it gave me that kind of confidence to be like, I should try this, right? So um, you can't necessarily just jump into being a social science writer when you have no background in social science. So I took as many classes as I could as an undergrad. Then I went to grad school and I went to grad school for org psychology and later uh, a doctorate in leadership. And the idea was that kind of what Gladwell was to just kind of the interesting societal ideas I wanted to do in a leadership space. I wanted to be able to take ideas from the ivory tower to the corner office, as we say on the podcast. Um, and so that, that was the model. That was the template it was, okay, can I blend storytelling and writing about social science in a way that's engaging, but also gets, um, good ideas across. So, so that was the goal I needed a way to figure out kind of how to do that. Cause you know, it, you can, there are great examples of people who just put up a blog and go, here I am world. And, um, and we tell those great examples because they're more interesting than the thousands and thousands of people who put up a blog and no one visited. No one visits it, excuse me. Right. So um, so I started looking into other ideas, and this was before podcasting was kind of, this was before Serial, before it was super cool, before, I mean, some of the authors I was reaching out to even knew what a podcast was, but I got this idea that like, well, if I started a podcast, I could get interesting people to talk to me. Um, and so we did. So we started the podcast seven, almost seven years ago now, and on this idea that we could just, I would, if I cold emailed enough authors of enough nonfiction books that I really enjoyed, some of them would talk to me. And then over time, we would build an audience as, in, you know, interviewing interesting people. And, you know, at the time, like, um, we, and we, by no, we didn't go like, you know, scale like crazy and become a, an art of charm or a, a, you know, a gimlet type podcast. We're still not that, but you know, at the time, the only other podcast that was kind of doing this was the HBR IdeaCast. So there was a place for some of those listeners if they wanted more content, and that was us. And and it it worked. And fast forward, I think, I think we would have been. Let me do the math. We would have been four years in when uh, the Miss of Creativity launched. I, I I never really. I mean, I did a little bit of writing on my own site, but I never really. Um, 
wrote for my own site. My site was the podcast, and then I was trying to write for bigger and bigger publications, eventually the Harvard Business Review, and then we got this um, this book deal for the creativity book through Josie Bass. Um, and it was a good deal. I mean, any any deal for a first-time author is a great book deal. Um, so we went with it, and we published it, and uh, then, I, then I learned that I knew nothing about how to launch a book, and so I scrambled as quickly as I could, and we did an okay job, but I learned a lot of lessons the hard way that we got to put into under new management. So that was a lot of fun because um, you learn. And then I learned more things through under new management. But that's a whole other story. Um, so, yeah, that's the short version of how we got from like zero to uh, to book. And then what's interesting is to see uh, we're recording this about two days after the Mist of Creativity's third birthday. So it's kind of cool to see the way that that book is still has legs. The ideas are still getting out there. You see them resonating in other books. It's actually really cool to see every once in a while I'll see myself cited in some other book. That's pretty cool. I won't lie. Um, and part of that is you know, I'm, I have a little bit of academic in me. So um, anytime there's citations, that gets really exciting. So, yeah, it's been cool over three years to see the um, how that from from a very humble launch and very humble beginnings to see how those ideas are still still rippling out there. Hey, David, I, I think it's about time we played a little clip from the audiobook version, which is narrated by Rich Orlo. Why don't we do sure. that? Let's do it. These represent products, internal programs, and myriad other projects needing collaboration. Unlike email, these communities are totally transparent, so newcomers can see all of the communication about particular issues. Like email, conversations are threaded, so that newcomers to the community can see the past history of the discussion. Unlike email, however, conversations are not digitally pushed to employees' inboxes, interrupting their focused work time. Instead, employees can choose to enter the discussion on their terms. The social network also makes it easier for employees to find needed experts, share knowledge company-wide, and most importantly, collaborate better. And the new system has dramatically cut down on internal email. To help its managers adjust, Atos even created training programs for more than 5,000 managers to teach them how to lead their departments and projects in a zero email environment. Ah, I love his narration. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's way better than me. So that was actually from um, Under New Management. That's from that outlaw email chapter. Yes. Um, and an example of uh, a company that banned email entirely internally and replaced it with something way better. Um, but yeah, so I haven't gotten the chance to narrate either of my books and it's okay because the people who do it are professionals and they do a way better job. Yeah. You know, and, and I think you, you sound great that you'd be a, a great at narrating it, but it's just the, the time constraints too. Cause I mean, you know, for a, you know, six hour audiobook that that's going to be like, you know, for your first time out, that's going to be like 48 hours of recording. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, and you know, honestly, a lot of these audiobook companies now can really churn these things out. So Missive Creativity, for example, was bought directly by Audible, not an audiobook publisher, but Audible itself. And they had it up. I mean, they bought it maybe four weeks before, um, before the book launched and it was up about, it was on online about two days after launch. Uh, and, and, and we launched seven days before we had previously announced that we were launching. So it was pretty good how quickly they got it up there. Um, so they really know how to turn it out in a professional way that that also is really, really quick, which is good, if, especially if you're an audiobook fan. It means more of them out there, which is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, David, uh, why don't you tell the folks where they can find uh, your podcast, your audiobooks, your books, your blog, everything. <laughs> where where they can find everything. So um, 
The uh, the best place to find me is davidburkus.com. That's B-U-R-K-U-S. Um, from there, you can find some info about the books. Probably more importantly, there's a bunch of free resources about the ideas in both of the books there on that site. Um, and then also, you know, how to get a hold of me uh, on, on social network of choice or even by email. I still respond to my email even though I wrote a chapter about banning it all. So davidburkus.com, um, D-A-V-I-D-B-U-R-K-U-S.com would probably be the best place. You can even listen to the Radio Free Leader podcast there. So probably the best place for all of it. And thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll return uh, soon and join us on a panel to talk about uh, probably nonsense, some other thing that we're, you know, not, not as important as uh, leading businesses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, always, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of books. That's, how, that's why I was an English major to begin with. And so nerding out on this side of it instead of just talking about the ideas is also super fun. So thank you so much for having me. All right, we'll have you back on uh, without the, uh, the suit and tie. And maybe we'll just, we'll talk about like uh, Marvel's Luke Cage or something. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> and we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll speak with Susan Weinstein. Hi, this is Scott Brick. I'm the audiobook narrator of the Quinn series, written by, I don't know, some guy named Brett Battles. You're listening to The Book Guy. Book Guys. And we're back. And joining us again on the show is Susan Weinstein. Is it a Weinstein or Weinstein? I always I always get that wrong. Susan Weinstein. And I'm an I because there are a lot of people with this name yes, out there. Yes, okay. So Susan I. Weinstein, how are you? Welcome back. First Thank off. you. I'm fine today. Excellent. And and you've got quite a few, uh, three editions of your books uh, are being reprinted as new editions. T- yes, Tell us they how are. that came about. That sounds exciting. Well, it really is because, in other words, the books are not being re- are not just reprints; they're new editions, which means you have to have substantial new material. Um, so, for the Anarchist Girlfriend, we went back and looked at that time period and thought about what it means today. Um, we also have vintage visuals for the first time; it was exerted. Um, in the uh, Lower Portable Lower East Side, which is part of NYU's collection of the art and lit scene of the Lower East Side, which is late 70s into 80s. That was 84. So that um, essentially this is very exciting to go back to these books and actually think about them in terms of today. And that's what I'm doing. And the difference between new editions is it gives you a context. It's not just a reprint, not to mention that since the other books were done online, there it was really, they needed to be reformatted. They needed to be cleaned up a bit. So it really is new, improved, and different. And I think they're quite elegant. And Pelicanesis has done an amazing job. They they certainly have. I love the artwork. I love the, the, the feel of the book. And I believe mine is just a preview, but it's still, it looks great. Um, and um, I, I did, I have to admit that last time it was, when you were doing it as a serial, I yes, got to say, e- Personally, I hate the serial format. <laughs> well, you know, it didn't, it didn't really work out for them. I mean, in other words, their idea was to do online publishing. And at that point in time, people believed there were no longer, paper was going to be obsolete. And of course, that is not actually what developed and happened. So when they did these books, they did them as a serial. Then they um, decided to print some up, but they weren't really formally published. And now I'm doing them in a more... Um, in a way where they really are more books and not really that hybrid. Right. And then someone forgetful like me, I mean, uh, I would probably stop listening to most of the podcasts I do if my phone didn't remind me every week when they come out. So, and you know, serial format, that that goes way back. That's, I mean, that's how novels were originally printed, were they not? 
Well, yeah, they were. That was how uh, Dickens made his money because he was paid by the word. Right. <laughs> and they would do the serials. And serials work in certain kinds of things like comic books. I think they're wonderful for comic books. And I think illustrated novels, they can be really great, but people look at them in the whole book format. Um, right. This book, though, Anarchist Girlfriend was had a more interesting serial originally because I was going to clubs, art bars and clubs in, this, in New York City at that time, and people would do performances, and you actually could come back, and the same crowd or new people would come back the following week, and you would oh, leave nice. them on a cliffhanger. Yes. So that was kind of a different type of serial. Absolutely, absolutely. That that sounds great. That would be actually a entertaining way to uh, consume a novel yeah so it was it was actually quite a lot of fun and i mean i didn't do the whole novel we were doing the introduction we were doing the first groups of chapters i don't think they the performances ever made it through all the chapters right <laughs> they, they were done later but at that time there was an awful lot of performances zines were doing um were doing a lot of marathons there were it was it was a very interesting period where uh Fiction was was crossing over. The categories were not quite as as straight as they are now. Right, right. Now the the anarchist girlfriend. Let's uh, remind uh, our, our listeners uh, all about it. Uh, it well, it, I call it a period piece, but I guess technically it's a alternative history, uh, be, because there is major events in the book that uh, you know are not in you know in history books. So maybe we could, we could call is that the right term? Well, I mean, I would just look at it as fiction. In other words, yes. this, to some extent, the antecedents are these are Dostoevsky's The Idiot, Sister Carrie, um, if you think of Zola's Nana. In other words, it's the novel as social history. And really what it's looking at is this is a tale of innocence to maturity and it's set in that era, which is the, it was started writing it in the late 70s into the early 80s. And it's really looking at society. And if you think of, there was a movie being there, where there are a number of things that traded off of this notion of a divine innocent. And how does, what happened to that person? They become a mirror for their society at the time. Yes. So to some extent, the anarchist girlfriend mirrors her time and our time and it's that eternal story of um of innocence awakening and then what happens so that it's it's got a it's kind of a coming of age novel also but it's a very old theme um it's the divine fool and in this case it's a clairvoyant um go-go dancer who makes clothes of the future as opposed to mishkin in right. um the idiot <laughs> yes and, and and she's surrounded by characters uh just as interesting as her, if not more so. Well, I mean, yes. In other words, she has her her boyfriend who is an anarchist. And the thing about this story is most of it is not made up. There indeed was an Irish anarchist who believed that organic food was a way to bring peace to the world and peace to the troubles in Ireland. And I actually put him in as her boyfriend, and it's based on someone who was actually real and doing that in a basement. He was silk screening. And at right. that time, people were did a tremendous amount of postering all over the place. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a big graffiti era. It was much more postering, and then it led to stencils, and I think it moved into graffiti, but people still had silk screens. So he's real. Um, Sandy, who runs an answering service. Now, many people would take issue. They said, who ran a switchboard? 
And I said, well, actually, people still did. And I know that answering service. I worked on that an answering service with almost the same people at the end of the late 70s. So I actually do, um, there's actually many things in this book, characters that are true. Um, Mr. Dio, who the plot is revolves around Arizona, Dustin, the missile system, and Mr. Dio. But Mr. Dio was actually someone I met on a tent job, and indeed this was all true about the Dustin, the missile system. So, in other words, many of this book seems fantastic, but actually in that time, many people were much more extreme. They did not have devices like we do today. They did not have categories like we have. So that many things were improvised. You know, you you just covered one of my next questions, which was uh, if the uh, the dust, uh, the missile system, and the dust uh, relating to it were a conspiracy theory that was true or fact or or fake. But there we go; it's uh, something that actually happened. Well, yes, this guy this guy had the bottle of whiskey in the bottom of the drawer. I was a temp secretary, <laughs> um, and he needed to tell somebody. So you be, I became a confessor in a way and was not unlike the anarchist girlfriend in that was kind of innocent about it and people would project onto her very much and I think anybody that's worked in an anonymous job like that, people do project onto you whatever's going on in their heads and that was the point of the idiot where he was really reflecting things. And the anarchist girlfriend is, she, she t people tell her things or she reflects what she sees. Excellent, excellent. And you have two other books that are also being uh, re-released. Uh, one of them, uh, I just told you before the, we started recording that uh, that's going to be one of my next reads is Paradise Gardens. Because uh, uh, as soon as I saw it, it's, uh, you know, you know, it looks like a, it looks like a dystopian future. And I like that. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about Paradise Gardens is that um, I was looking very much, and this was the era of Reagan, at capitalism. I had read a book about how feudalism progressed to capitalism, so I decided to see what would happen if you reversed it. And in the science fiction tradition, this is done a lot with dystopias, and um, at the time I had been working with a science fiction press, and I had read a lot of Dick, I read a lot of people, but I wanted to kind of, this is something that I um, how can I put it? This book entered my dreams. It was extrapolating from what was going on in the society at the time. So this book takes place in 2050 and it takes place in 3011. And the corporations who now control most of, most of the world have moved underground. Um, they have formed a feudal estates, it's the corporate business estates. And the people on the earth who are left, the unconnected, are there and they're kind of, they're left out. But, right. So what the, sto what the story of this is, is it's really projecting a kind of uh, a dark world that could very well develop. And um, the thing about Paradise Gardens is that many of the things that are in Paradise Garden are devices that have since come about. They actually exist. So there's things like there are helmets that are used for reprogramming. And there are forms of that type of thing that, that do exist. They didn't then. Um, one of the things that actually shocked me is I had an editor, Kelly LaPointe, who worked with me on it, and we had the World Trade Center um, where half of it was gone and had been attacked, and that hadn't happened. Wow. <laughs> and then the big thing is the group of, um, the group of people who are involved with the, with the radicals, the hackers. They have message boards. They um, do operations. Um, there's whole groups of them of underground. At that time, there was no internet. Wow. There was no um, 
underground. There were no message boards. And there certainly are now, are there not? <laughs> yes, there are. So there are various things I've had to update in this book, but I think that there's that people do sometimes dream their novels. And over a number of years, this one definitely um, was something I had to write. And it, I wrote it over a period of almost 10 years. Wow. on and off while I was working. I was always working while I wrote these things. I always had to, you know, earn a living on them. And I've up, I had to do quite a lot of updating and working out the plausibilities. But um, I think it's quite an original book in some ways. I mean, I'm not just saying this because it's mine, but I think a, a lot of people have found it actually very scary and very funny at the same time. <laughs> so... So I am hoping that people will read it as a cautionary tale and find it also scary and funny and that it will help a lot of what's going on now from actually coming about, which is the point. Yeah. In other words, there is a book called It Can't Happen Here, which was um, a thing that was written in the 30s about fascist taking, fascism taking over America. And many of the events recently we've seen, you can draw parallels to regarding our elections. Yeah, um, th things are changing quickly to the point where uh, technology is going to be a little bit more disruptive than we thought. Uh, I'm just looking at some stories from this week where it looks like uh, 10 to 20 years and 4.2 million drivers might be out of a job. Well, maybe. I mean, the, the best thing I've seen on that recently was Werner Herzog's movie, Lo and Behold, where he actually looks at everything that's going on in technology now and extrapolates into the future about bad and good. Apparently, the big hot topic now is not the cars, it's not the rocket ships to the moon, it's not um, the structures, the layers of structures that we have to run our cities, it's actually ethics. Apparently, a lot of people who are systems designers and analysts are having big meetings about ethics, about actually what you can do, what you should do, how to control, not necessarily control, but to set up standards. Right, right. Well, there's, there's some ethics issues with the cars as well, with the automated cars, because uh, now programmers have to sit there and figure out, in certain scenarios, who does the car kill? Does it kill the occupant? Does it run over the children that are crossing the street? Uh, wow, how, I never, I never thought of that. How do you program it? <laughs> how do you value a human life over another, or does it value its owner's life over everyone else? And will that be legal? You know, there's a lot of dilemmas in all the new technology that we're. I mean, what they showed with the cars was the guy who's the same guy trying to go to Mars has done a lot of stuff with the cars, and what they were saying is the big issues now is to just direct them so that they know they know when they've done something wrong and that they learn from that and that they actually communicate it to all the other cars right. so that at this point in time they have changing the learning so that it will leap so those decisions you're talking about are something that programmers are going to be working out at those conferences we're talking about right <laughs> right and and you know what before uh, before we go uh we might as well go through all three and there's a third uh book which which was well, actually, Tales of the Murr Family Onyx was um, the first one, I, first book I ever put together. And it's put together, actually, this is somewhat, you know, kind of funny. It originally grew out of stories that I was writing over years um, because my son was totally obsessed with mermaids. And I came up with a whole group of families. And nice. <laughs> 
This book actually, in its original incarnation, the people that run the Oz store, Books of Wonder, took this because they believed it was for adults and children and that people would have to look up words and you'd have to come up with concepts that would please both of them, which is the way children's books used to be. They weren't graded by, they weren't down, dumbed down. Right. So that this one is not really for children. There's actually more adults that like it because there's things like the Coney Island Mermaid Parade in New York City. Well, the real mermaids decide to go because they actually want to meet the Earth mermaids. And, like, what does occur? I mean, that's been very popular. And the books had an eerie kind of thing where actually there was a sideshow guy, gaff guy who does Fiji mermaids. Okay. And he sold a mini mermaid called Pinky. And my son bought it, and he has a whole line of mini mermaids. And he said, well, you know, I read this book, Tales of the Mer Family Onyx, and that was one of the characters. So that's where he came about with his nice. line of Fiji's. <laughs> <Very neat. laughs> so it's kind of a funny thing. But the thing that's interesting about this book to me is that the original incarnation um, which I had done, and it's the oldest one, has there been people in Mexico, Indonesia, Finland, because the mermaid culture is so old, and the stories are almost universal. Right, right. Fantastic. I love the whole, uh, you know, the, where do these, uh, these myths come from, the mermaid myths? Who knows? Who knows? Well, I mean, they're very, they're seafaring cultures, and absolutely yes and, and and i mean i'm portuguese descent and i can see it when i visit the little fishing towns and you still see on some boats you know little images of uh of the mermaid at the front and whatnot well, you have neptune you know neptune is the force of the sea i mean it's a very eternal thing and they say sailors are superstitious i don't think more so than other people but i think sailors are very artistic i mean i actually paint and have been out on decks and talked to them and many of them have a sense of how can I put it, not just the mythology of the water, but the fact that it's something humans have limitations in understanding nature. And I think that that's something they're very aware of. And yeah. some of the most ancient stories have to do with families. Families of the, the sea is their, their ground, their earth. And also the mer, mer people are between two worlds. They are between the, you know, the sky and the earth and the water, and they are between those two worlds. And that is part of, I think, the popularity because a person on the water can feel like a fish out of water. They can feel like a person who doesn't really belong in either place. And I think that's why children who are growing like it and adults link into it because it's something that's beyond our society. Absolutely. It's fantastic, as they say. Yes, um, exactly. So uh, these three are from uh, coming, I believe they're all published from Pelicanesis. Pelicanesis is going to be is doing the the new editions, and um, I'm really excited and and happy that they're going to be out and they're going to have such a great home, um, because these the serial thing they would just stop publishing altogether. And when I thought about did I want want to do reprints, it was like no, but I wanted to do new editions so that they have a context, so that they have a relevancy, and that. I can also go through and fix the things that didn't work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And find a new audience is a really big deal. So I'm really hoping that um, that people will really enjoy these books. So they can find all these at pelicanesis.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, Susan, where can they find you or your oh, website? 
<laughs> well, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm on um, I have Facebook for both of these. There's the Facebook for the new edition of the Anarchist Girlfriend and the Anarchist Girlfriend itself. There's a there's a there's a book one too. So there's Facebook. There's Twitter. Um, I also have a blog that just it's a regular book blog. Um, that's www.notanotherbookreview.blogspot.com. But it's mostly my reviews because I'm a I'm kind of a student of literature and books. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Susan. We're going to be speaking later on with Mark Givens from Pelicanesis, who you may be oh, familiar with. Mark Mark is doing something really new and something that's very traditional in a way. In other words, he's a, he's a publisher who's doing it right, and he's picking interesting books. And he very, for a long time, he had a magazine called Mong that was a very progressive literary magazine that I believe he may still have. I'm not sure. And so he's been doing quite a variety of books not a lot of them so many you know so many for a year and he's been doing them right so that there there's care put into them he's very um, particular about how he's setting them about how he's doing the covers and about how he's getting them out there he's quite admirable looking forward to speaking with him thank you so much Susan thank you the dawn of an age the founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're... Oh, Reed, not you too! What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly! We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power! I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth, and half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. Got me dying to those powerful cousins on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatuts, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to let be drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.Libsyn. Don't go in the mouth.
for you, Doctor. You know the demon's name. <laughs> I am the master. For more exciting adventures in audio time and space, visit us online at amaudiomedia.com. I'm back, and Greg's back. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing well. Good. And we have another guest, a Mr. Mark Givens, all the way from Hi. Pelicanesis. Hi, guys. It's great to be here. How you doing? Love your logo. I'm just looking Thank at the Skype. Thank you very much. We were admiring your logo on the Skype long before you connected. That is neat. <laughs> uh, who did that up for you? I'm assuming that was you? Yeah, I did that. That's uh, one, of the, one of the fun things I get to do is d- design uh, logos and book covers and things like that. I, like, I love doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would definitely salute a superhero who had that on his chest. <laughs> for sure. If they, if they were lying on their side, right? That's right. <laughs> well, I'd be afraid not to. <laughs> yes, that's true, yes. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to see it on skateboards and things like that. You know? That would be great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was actually excited. I, got, I think I got one of those with my, uh, my copy of... Uh, Susan I Weinstein's uh, oh good, good, good yeah so that's, that, that'll uh, be on my the, MacBook. one of the um, one of the advantages of ordering directly from publishers is that you always get nice little uh, <laughs> googas and doodads in, yeah. your, uh, in your bag you know? <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us a bit about uh, Pelicanesis. so Pelicanesis uh, is small press indie press um, publishing house in California and uh, we we do it's very very small um art focused uh, uh literary works so it's um i i come from a, a long background of um indie music and indie rock and a lot of our releases are either self-released or with very very small companies and so this is the same kind of uh, aesthetic and same kind of thing applied to the literary world which is uh uh, I, I think that people have a, a, a misconception about what publishers do and what uh, what large publishing houses are able to offer and what small publishing houses are are not not able to offer. And, uh, and but the, there are advantages to working with a smaller company, um, more direct contact, and and uh, and we also focus on on works that are. Uh, that are more specialized and not necessarily the big sellers, although it'd be great if we had a big seller, uh, right. but we, that's not the main motivator. That's so, one of the factors when, I, when I'm choosing books uh, quite often is the publisher or the imprint, um, especially the, the, like you said, the smaller publishers. If I liked a book or two from that publisher, odds are I might like quite a bit more of their stable of books because yeah. you guys are like the modern day curators of, you know, yeah that that seems to be that seems to be true and so a lot of the uh uh a lot of we're we're more willing to give things a chance if we like it we hope that you like it too and so we're willing to to take a chance whether it uh succeeds or fails or has a a base of you know however many thousand we're just we're just hoping to put out good literature and 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 kind of expand the l- literary landscape that way and that's one of my um passions also is uh working with Art, with authors and artists who are who are passionate about what they do and can get me passionate about about their work also, so 
so that's uh, that's that's been exciting. Uh, a lot of like like you mentioned, a lot of the uh, the, the modern stuff is uh, they, all of these different book publishing companies and labels can can uh, uh, develop a, a motif or a there's a, a an organization up in San Francisco called uh, Nomadic Press. And they do a lot of small chapbooks, but they all look very, very similar. And so it's an ongoing series that is, it, to me, that's fascinating to develop a, a theme and to, to kind of explore different avenues there. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. But a lot of, like you said, a lot of um, uh, once you see something that you enjoy from, from this label or this publishing company, I keep saying, <laughs> I keep yeah. saying label. Um, <laughs> it's the, the indie rock uh, Thing, sure, Shannon. it's coming out. That's great. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but once you see uh, one or two books and and you like those those authors, then you start to develop a trust in the in the company and that kind of thing. So, absolutely, I'm looking at some of the stuff on uh, Pele. It's p e l e k i n e s i s dot com for the listeners. Pelicanesis dot com. I've already got two or three that uh, are going on the to wish list. Oh, good, good, good. That's uh, that's that's great. We just got a really nice write-up in Strange Horizons, uh, speculative fiction kind of kind of thing about the Codex Ocularis by uh, Ian Piper, who lives in uh, Brighton, and uh, it's a it's a great. Uh, there on the website you can read a couple of excerpts um, or just see the pages because to look at it is just a beautiful thing. He's a visual artist, and we work together to get this. Uh, it's a logbook of a virtual journey to a to a planet Ocularis where everything is eyeballs and and it's just just absolutely beautiful. Amazing. So this uh, <laughs> this guy just reviewed it and uh, really kind of he it, it's great to see it when people really get it you know <laughs> right. Uh, tell us a bit about the process of of, uh, of by the way what's your official title at Pelicanesis? I'm the the p- publisher founder. Uh, I do the book covers. I edit. Uh, I kind <laughs> If you could duct tape I, I a room to him. official title is whatever needs to be done. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm the, the dog and pony writer. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> Tell us a, a bit about uh, the starting up uh, a publishing. What, when did Pelicanesis start? And tell us a bit about so, that process. How, how, how'd you get there? It's, 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 always, um, <laughs> it's always strange to try to find a starting point for any, uh, to any artistic venture, but I was doing uh, zines back in the 80s and had a lot of uh, contact with these great author- authors and artists, um, and that was, that was very fulfilling. Talk about small market, though. That's, you know, 20 copies. Um, right, right. But then, then we, <laughs> we moved on to the, the web uh, with a magazine called Mungbean, um, and again, it's... It, it's M U N G B E I N G, just to throw everybody off, so that I can't say it <laughs> without <laughs> without explaining it. You know, um, much like telekinesis seems to be the, <laughs> the same kind of. I don't know why I keep shooting myself in the foot. Um, so Mungbean, it was an online magazine that I ran for about ten years, that had artists and and authors and a lot of the early telekinesis. In fact. They continue. Peter Church's is uh, is originally from Mungbean, and he's got another book coming out uh, uh, this next year. Um, so a lot of it evolved from Mungbean into. Uh, I said, you know what? I want to. I want to see what happens. I wonder if we can take this offline. I wonder what happens with physical media. It's just I've always been fascinated by by books and writing and all that stuff. And so I thought, let's see if we can take this idea and move it offline. Um, part of the reason I think is that, um, you know, after the the 
you know, the post-apocalyptic world, when people are digging through uh, the ruins of our, of our civilization, they're not going to be able to access all this digital information. Right. So <laughs> I, want, you know, I want to make books that will last. And, and, uh, That'll be and Amazon's last act on, on Earth would be to delete everyone's content. To delete everything, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'll show you, says Amazon, you know. Although they did call it a Kindle, so we should have seen it coming, right? right? Exactly. Everything is on fire. I don't get it. But <laughs> So, uh, so uh, you know, when they're digging through the rubble, they'll they'll come across these physical books and and be able to piece together the the underbelly of. Uh, I, I got to be honest. I I have a shelf uh, dedicated here to books that authors have sent me, and many of them I've requested. Although I do accept all any unsolicited uh, gifts in the mail. I love surprise, and I I love being recommended a book that I normally wouldn't pick out. But I do have a shelf dedicated to that, uh, physical books, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. my Kindle which is somewhere. So the odds are if, if a publisher sends me a digital version, it's on my Kindle somewhere. I tell them, send it to this address, my Kindle address. I know it's there, and I'm probably still going to read these 14 real books before that. Right, right. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that interesting? I, I always, uh, I'm always amazed by that kind of thing because I mean, I've got nothing against um, e-books. We put out e-book versions of all our things, and I think that however people are reading things, I think that's the important thing is, uh, is that they're reading these. They're, they have access to this material however they get it. But there is something kind of beautiful about you know, putting a putting a book on your shelf and and looking at the books and being able to to gauge where Absolutely. you are, and and it's it's so much easier to just hand someone your book and say, here, I'll lend you this. I think you'll really like it. Sure, yeah, yeah. And then saying you should go to Amazon and order this book. Well, I think that I you think know. that we, uh, I think we've got a lot a long way to go to develop like the right way to do electronic books. I think we were off on the right foot, and then it got a little proprietary. It got a little bit. Um, uh, confused, yeah. um, but th- it should be a very simple process. Here's my electronic book. Put it on this electronic device. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think one, one of the issues <laughs> is that, that uh, we decided, or Amazon decided, and right. the e-book makers decided, they were going to develop e-ink because they wanted the electronic book to look exactly like the printed page. Right, right. And although it is easy on the eyes, it's basically an inferior format of the paper book. Because it, it shouldn't be exactly like right. the, 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 the printed page. That's, I mean, the, the cover I, I a should be... a lot of poetry also, and we run into problems all the time with formatting because... because it the, doesn't the, fit, the, yeah. Exactly, and the beauty of the EPUB and the electronic format is that it is adaptable and it can move and, and you know, uh, shuck and jive, and it can really just kind of adapt to whatever you're looking at, which is, that's the beauty of it, right? That's the thing that it... Yeah. <laughs> that's its strong point, you know? Right. So to fight against that is really an interesting thing, so... Now, you think that that with all the things that we can do on our computers that a digital book should have be able to have like a, a video on its cover sure or, sure you know, or, and or a painting are, that moves there are you know. parts of the um of the ibook format that allow you to do that it's great for textbooks but uh, i can't i can't do i can't <laughs> well, it's a little beyond I was gonna say, and, and Amazon's now put out the Kindle in Motion. They have very few books. Oh, have on they? It. Ah, okay. right. But it doesn't work on an e-ink. It only works <laughs> on a on a normal Kindle or Kindle Fire. I forgot what they call them, but a a, right. a, a tablet Kindle, and right. that yeah. has as you're reading the pages change, or you know something something on the picture goes along with what you're reading. 
See, I think yeah. that's a that's a brilliant idea, and that's exactly what it should do: is is take advantage of the technology and the capabilities, so that when you're reading a textbook, you can click on a picture, or you can look up a word, or I mean, you can like that idea is just absolutely gorgeous. It's a wonderful idea. They should, I think, it should be made easier to to make those things, you know, so that people can actually look at them and say, oh, hey, this is kind of cool, you know. So right now, all we're doing, you're right, is just doing a cheap imitation of a of a hardcover book, and you know, <laughs> that's that seems kind of seems kind of like we're shortchanging everybody at that point, you know. Absolutely. So we've got a lot of physical books here that you can purchase at pelicanesis.com. You maybe want to uh, give us, uh, I don't know, don't uh, randomly choose a few. Don't don't get the authors upset. Just <laughs> you randomly well, pick one or two for us. Well, sure. Uh, the the books by the the books by uh, Susan Weinstein that are that are coming out. Uh, Anarchist girlfriend is coming out in December. Uh, that's a beautiful book. If you haven't had a chance to, to take a look at that, I you just spoke. I, with I, Susan. I had seen the uh, the art the uh, artwork that's on the cover before, but in black and white. Sure. And, sure. and on you know when she was doing the serial form of it, it just looks so beautiful. It's so well uh, well done. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy that we're able to, uh, to, to, uh, you know, make a just the definitive volume of this, of these, of these works because they're really good books and they really, you know, they need a wider audience and they need, absolutely, uh, they need to be archived the same way, you know. So, so those are those are at the top of my list. That and the other one that we're working on that's coming out uh, in October is by uh, Isadora Deese called uh, Rite of Capture, and it's kind of a sci-fi. Um, it's a sci-fi story. It's kind of young adult, but in the way that something like Orson Scott Card would be, you know, it appeals to younger people. But you know, it's got a couple of swear words and some situations that kids right. just don't really care about. You know, so, <laughs> but but it's uh, it's a it's a young adult science fiction s- story. The first in a the first in in five, a five book cycle. So that'll be uh, that'll be nice. That's coming out of October. Um, nice. And uh, so some other books that, that I'm, are you asking about what I'm reading or are you asking about things that are coming out on Pelicanesis here? Hey, if you want to do what we're reading here, i got to press this button here. Oh. What's on your... <laughs> What's on your Kindle? What's on your <laughs> nightstand? What's on your... What's on your bookshelf? What are you what reading? What are you reading? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's a book, um, a couple of books by Kimberly G, who is uh, an illustrator. Uh, her newest one is called The Class, and she she did the illustrations for it. And it's a just a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, it's for for kids. Um, and she also did Today with Megan Ted, which is a, a Golden Books book. But I I just love her illustrations. They're very classical uh, kids book illustrations. Very beautiful. Um, Sam Quinones also has a book out called Dreamland, which is about the uh, the heroin epidemic uh, in in the U.S. And he's been doing just some great research uh, and speaking engagements all around the, the the country. And and I I can't recommend that one high enough because it's it's a it's a very it's a, a very important topic that uh, is finally getting the 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 uh, profile it needs to get. Um, so those those are the two that uh, are, I'm also reading. Uh, I was working on John Darnielle's book, Wolf in White Van. He's an old friend of ours, and and uh, it's a that's a that's a great book too. So it's a little bit harder to uh, <laughs> it's it's a it's a pretty tough one. It's a it's a tough one. But then I've also been reading. Um, let's see, it's it's so amazing, which is a sex ed book from a while ago. My kids are uh, are just about <laughs> at that age, so we're. We're starting to get into that kind of thing. So those are the books that I'm uh, 
that I'm reading right now. Yeah, just just give the It's So Amazing a quick go through, make sure it wasn't written like in the 1940s or anything. No, no we, we, read, <laughs> we read through it and it's got, um, it's got some good stuff about uh, good touch and bad touch and bodies and it's, it's pretty thorough. Um, it's got some illustrations that almost trick you into thinking that it's a uh, <laughs> like a, a, a kid's story, but it's kind of funny. You but, never know uh, what's in those old textbooks. I mean, after the Soviet Union uh, fell apart, there was one year where they had to cancel all the history uh, tests because oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, because the the new government took a look at all the curriculum in the old history books. Said nee, maybe yeah, uh, nice, half but... of it was uh, <laughs> totally made up to glorify Mother <laughs> Russia. So they figured, yeah, maybe we'll start teaching them the truth. So you, like, there was like a whole year of students in Russia that got a break on history and all got passed. <laughs> that's, see, I think that uh, I think that's it's good to to reexamine your uh, your curricula <laughs> just to to make sure what you're saying is actually true. Hmm. Mm. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you know uh, what what I've been reading. Obviously, I've been reading. Uh, I, I never got to finish it when it was in serial format, so I did really enjoy uh, the Anarchist Girlfriend by Susan I Weinstein. 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 Uh -huh. I always get that wrong. Um, yeah, really enjoyed that. Love the cover. Oh, good, it's good. now on my shelf, of course. Um, and uh, the other that I recently read, which was sent to me as an, an ARC, uh, advanced reader copy, f was uh, James Patterson's um, Cradle and All. Oh, how's that? Is and, that good? Well, it turns out, as I was Googling it to, to put it into the show notes here so I could you know, bring up an audible clip or whatever, I noticed he had published it before in the year 2000. So I'm wondering huh. why, maybe he's just run out of uh, people to write books for him, and he has to start re-releasing <laughs> them. You know? That's that's funny because I mean we we uh, we've encountered the same kind of thing with uh, with Susan's books, right? Uh, we we were thinking about just doing reprints, right? Which right. which you know, but we decided to add a bunch of material and make them you know really new editions that that put it in a social context. Yeah, you put some context. content, maybe maybe do a few corrections. I mean, right, you know. right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but but Cradle and All, an interesting book, and I mean I'm not making fun of it. It's very well known. It's not a conspiracy theory that James Patterson. Uh, does not write every book that he uh, publishes under his name. He's, I would say James Patterson's more like a curator and a publisher than an author at this point. Um, huh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he has said it himself that he likes writing outlines. He likes thinking up a really neat story, how it begins, what the middle is, and how it ends. And he'll give you some outlines on the characters, and he'll literally hand it off to someone and pay them to, to write the novel. I'm sure there's some sort of other financial gain they will get if the novel is popular, but uh, cr that's, Cradle and All. That's, that's interesting. That's really yeah, interesting. He, I like that idea. A it's, a, it's, a, it's an old art uh, idea also, is, you know, the factory, and, and there are a bunch of Kostabi-type type people that do that all the time, and I think that's just a, a... I mean, why not? You know, it doesn't mean they're bad books. And, and it's kind of fun <laughs> reading his books and trying to wonder who wrote it. Right. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure this one was written by a very religious woman. <laughs> but this is a uh, cradle and all. It's not a who done it. It's it's more of a um, which is which. Uh, one one child is born, and again the religion plays heavy in it. One child is uh, one woman is pregnant in one place, and another woman is pregnant in the other place, and uh, one of them bears the son of God. One of them bears, of course, the Antichrist. Which is which? <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> um, it's fun, of course. It, it uh, the, through the whole thing. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, the baseline is that uh, you know everything that we've read about in the Bible was real. So there's a lot of supernatural uh, sure. things going on. 
it's kind of neat. I, I did kind of figure out who which was which long before uh, the end, but it, it yeah. did, did keep me guessing for a while. Lots of fun. What's on your Kindle nightstand there, uh, Craig Damelo? So I just finished uh, Off to Be the Wizard Ooh. In, uh, from Scott Meyer, who I think we're having on the show soon. And uh, it, it's an interesting book. It's it's a, I think he's calling it the Magic 2.0 series, and I actually went right through it. Uh, but it's it's about a computer uh, hacker that finds a file, and he figures out by manipulating the file he can affect the world around him, in essence. And it's a file that's out there, and so did you find it's like kind the of about base the code for reality? That's great. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I mean it was re- it was real. I mean it's it's a it's a great book. Like I said, I flew through it, uh, and it's uh, it's a good story, and uh, it, it basically that without ruining it because I think it's in the description. He ends up in medieval England, uh, trying to avoid uh, the trouble he got himself into quickly in modern times. Oh, so he's able that- to send himself back in time, and then act like a wizard uh you know with all the so, i mean i think he opens up with like saran wrap showing him saran wrap Ooh, saran wrap <laughs> that's pretty who is that by it's by scott meyer scott meyer okay to write that down now definitely gonna put all these wonderful books in the in the show notes for sure okay for sure for your convenience <laughs> so You're so like so that. mark um Pelicanesis, what's moving forward? What are you working on? What's uh, what's on so the horizon? So we're we're wrapping up the uh, the book by Isadora Dees, and that'll be out soon. Then after that, let me see. We're we've got uh, we're going into we've got another book of poetry coming out by Sam Dees, uh, and that's going to be that's really beautiful. Then we're going into um, authors' uh, second books. So Peter Church's put out uh, Lift Your Right Arm in 2014, 13, 14. And now his, his new one is called Autobiography Without Words. So that's coming out at the beginning of the year. Um, David Allen is a local columnist, and he, so he's got another book of his columns coming out. And then Peter Wartzman's uh, got a collection of short stories coming out soon, too, called Footprints in Wet Cement. And that's going to be it's, he's a beautiful writer too. Um, after that, we've got a new author call, uh, named Selena Chambers, who has written. She's uh, the co-author of a Hugo Award-winning uh, book called uh, uh, about steampunk, um, and that's so with Jeff Vandermeer. She was the co-author on that, and so she's got a book coming out of uh, short stories coming out called Calls for Submission. So we're getting into a lot of um, authors' uh, next books, which is nice. And then with Susan's books. Um, the next book that we that we do a new edition of will be uh, Paradise Gardens, which is another uh, uh, groundbreaking novel yeah, that she I'm wrote. Looking forward to that one. She was telling us about it, and it looks like fun. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a really good one. So, looking forward to those. Fantastic. Otherwise, we're uh, we're pressing on with uh, I, uh, people are doing readings all around the country and and. Uh, Art shows and and uh, and book readings and book signings. Uh, we've got. Uh, I've, I'm doing a couple of panels myself and just a lot of local stuff around California here. But then also in New York, we've got people doing readings all the time. And down in Boston, we've got you know a bunch of authors there. So yeah, we're we're uh, so we're spreading we're moving your wings. Slowly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Very nice. And where can folks find info on all your wonderful books? So, telekinesis.com, it's like uh, telekinesis, but with a P, because 
they're birds and they can move books with their minds. Um, so that's P-E-L-E-K-I-N-E-S-I-S dot com. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Pelikinetic, and uh, and that's pretty much where we're where we're living. Fantastic, man! Thanks for joining yeah. us. It's been a it's been great talking to you guys. Thank you very pleasure. much for having we'll me. We'll have you back on a panel when when there's a bunch of people shouting and yelling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. That'd be awesome. This is Tony Gimignani from San Francisco, California, author of the Pizza Bible and owner of Tony's Pizza Napolitana, and you're listening to the Book Guys. Book Guys, and we are back. Books on film and television. Yeah, Luke Cage. Anybody been watching Luke Cage? I'm I'm about halfway through the season. I uh, have not finished it yet, but. Uh, so far, so good. Talk me into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Luke Cage. Uh, you know, if if you if you take a look at the character, right? It's it's just he's just a strong dude, right? He's got impenetrable skin. He's really strong, but he can't fly, so he's like diet Superman, right? But it just just a well done show. Mar- Marvel is really kicking ass on in the TV front. I mean, th- this is a uh, uh, like. A, a show about black people that isn't, you know, racist, you know, or or written by someone who has no idea about black culture. You could tell it's written by someone who knows their, you know, knows their shit. Yeah, and what I've liked about this one over some of their other shows is, I thought they've gotten some of the, I don't know how to say it, the the imagery right to to go along with the comic book. They they shoot it in a way that's not. Uh, that makes it feel like the comic book, but without being overt about it. Right. Like, well, I mean, one of, in one of the first few episodes, at one point, I love that they they found this convoluted way to get him basically into the original, you know, outfit from the comic books, where he looked like yeah. basically an escaped slave, right? And, and he just looks in the car uh, reflection on in the in a car door, and he and he says, "I look like a fucking idiot." <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, that was that was a. Gr- I loved that. Because for a second I was thinking, oh my god, they're not really going to do this, are they? <laughs> you know, and it, and that was taken care of r- rather quickly. But yeah, the the imagery is great. I mean, the the cinematography, uh, the storyline. I think that if anything I can c- complain about is that the uh, the the villains are really weak. Yes, yeah, that's that's kind of been my thing too. Is uh, they they haven't been, and and you know, I thought in uh, to go. To another one, Daredevil. The first season of Daredevil, the uh, Kingpin was pretty weak. It was it was Jessica Jones is the one that nailed the villain so yeah. far. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, D- David Tennant as uh, what's his name again? The purple dude. Uh, he was uh, phenomenal. The man in purple, I think, was all they called his. Yeah. Technically, his name was. Yeah, but th- that I'll was. I'll watch anything, anything with Christian Ritter. I will watch. Hey, hey now. Kristen Ritter. Kristen Ritter. Hey, why not? Have you seen the Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23? <laughs> no. 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 Uh, it was. It lasted, I think, one season or maybe two. And it was her and some corn-fed uh, Midwestern, probably a girl from Kansas. She, and she moves to New York City and moves in with this conniving bitch who's Kristen Ritter. And she scams her out of money and... And she's like, you know, a uh, country girl in the city. And Kristen Ritter's actually like best friends with James Vanderbeek from Dawson's Creek. 
Hmm. And James Van- Vanderbeek plays James Vanderbeek. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know? And like <laughs> okay. he's banging chicks that are coming over that love Dawson's Creek and, you know, uh, trading sexual favors for a, a shirt that he claimed he wore on the show and stuff like that. It's a hilarious show. I, I'm sad that it. I, I, I love cameos episode. where the person play, uh, played themselves. Like uh, Method Man is in uh, Luke But it's Cage. not a cameo. He's like he's like in the whole season. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's really cool. Have you, uh, speaking of newer shows, have, have you, either of you guys seen any of Westworld? Oh, yeah. That's HBO. Yeah, Westworld. Yeah. Wow. It's not TV. It's HBO. You, you know, <laughs> yeah, one, that's a, 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 I'll have to wait till that comes on Amazon streaming unless somebody's, uh, you know, wanting to share. <laughs> you know, but Westworld uh, kind of made me upset watching it because I was thinking, man, this could have been The Dark Tower. You know, HBO could have used this exact set and, and made a kick-ass Dark, Dark Tower series. What, what, what is it really like? Is it like uh, Blade Runner in the Old West or something? Well, you know what? You, if you really want to check out what it's like, uh, t- take a look at the original movie, uh, Westworld. Um, it's, it's that, but yeah, updated. Yeah, which I think you can. Yeah, I think you can stream that it's... on Netflix. I mean, if you look at Michael Crichton's work, Westworld is, is the precursor. Jurassic Park. I mean, it's Jurassic Park is essentially a scene for scene reshoot of Westworld with dinosaurs instead of cowboys. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, except for the scene for scene reshoot part, that's an entirely true statement. Yeah. And this one looks like it's going to go really dark, like really dark. Yeah. I I've only watched the first episode. I got to watch the second one tonight, but, uh, I I'm blown away honestly with how good it was. I, I didn't have high expectations for it just cause I mean, the original movie is very cheesy, but it's still a great movie. Uh, the, the sequel future world is horrible, but still worth watching. But, uh, I, there were so many ways they could have done this series wrong. And yeah. so far with the first episode, they, they nailed everything that, that opening scene where you find out who's the robot and who's the guest. Right. I, th- I thought was done so perfectly. I have a feeling this will not end well for some of the guests at some point. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, like a- animatronic uh, Mickey Mouse is going to go all, you know. <laughs> uh, hey, we got some great guests coming up. And I can say this now because we have uh, interviews in the can. So I can say with authority that uh, we've got uh, Mark, uh, let's see, no, Tony Gimignani, the pizza man himself, the world's greatest pizza maker is going to be on. To talk about his book, uh, and we also have. What Scott. about the dude with the uh, the dude with the book? One hundred and one facts you can't prove aren't oh, true. Oh, we got to have them on. That's Jason Hammerell and Jeff Waldman. Although you know what, I'm not even sure that's their names after reading some of this book. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't prove that it's not. It's the, not. One of the ones I can't get over is like I, a gift horse will instinctively kick you if you look it in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I like this one here. Uh, the 911 emergency number was chosen because it's the easiest number to remember. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> if you say great... a lot of these things to people, you see their head like tilt sideways and they're like, hmm. If you were to accidentally leave this at someone's house who has small children, you would really mess them up for life. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like the, the Cliff Clavin with, uh, you know, <laughs> the Zodiac Killer was a Gemini. <laughs> you know? It's the it's the perfect book to read through 
and then leave by the toilet in the guest bathroom. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah, is that, right. Is that, that's a glowing recommendation oh yeah and and <laughs> you know what craig i uh thanks for bringing to our attention scott meyer who we did interview and that he's going to be on the next book ice show um i really enjoyed off to be the wizard what a great concept that the world is just you know oh, me too I, a computer construct such a great <laughs> and you know what since, since reading finishing that book i listened to the audiobook which was well done well narrated as well um you know it's not just the Wachowski brothers that, that think that, you know, we're living in a computer simulation. We're talking like, you know, like Elon Musk. And and uh, and it's not like Elon Musk just, you know, threw away a casual statement one day that he thinks the world is simulation. No, he's put literally millions of dollars into science because not only does he uh, believe that we're in a simulation, he wants, he wants scientists to get us out of it. <laughs> and you can't write this stuff, folks. You can't make this up. <laughs> I'm happy with the way the steak tastes. Hey, no. Yeah, it's pretty good. But, you know, uh, the, the story, uh, Jimmy, of Off to Be the Wizard is that some guy actually f finds on the Internet the source code to the simulation we're in, and he starts changing it. So they, these guys become godlike almost. And then he goes to the 1600s in England and becomes a wizard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that'd be cool. Just, yeah, you well, could really you could dominate. You know, sometimes you hear book concepts like that, and and it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun, and then you actually read it, and it's like, bam, bam. But this actually paid off. Uh, I'm gonna I'm moving on to the. Uh, I think there's two more in the series, Craig. Is that right? Yeah, and and he's and he not to spoil our own podcast, but uh, he said the fourth one is in work. That's right. Yeah, I'm reading the second one now. Uh, uh, and so far, it's it's delivering on the same comedy, and it hasn't hasn't let down. This is one I could easily see a, a HBO picking up. <laughs> yes, yeah. And Elon Musk might find it, might fund it, not find it. <laughs> That's it. It's time to go. <laughs> yes, with, with that. <laughs> yes. If you can't pronounce fund, it's time to end the show. See you next week, folks. See you, Jimmy. Hello. See you, Craig. See ya. May the farts be with you. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Book Guide Show will return next week. Same book time, same book channel.